So we have a situation right now where the public good is in private hands and that creates a lot of issues. I do, I do have to say that's that's quite frightening <laughs> in a way. Yeah. The science Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Science Basement podcast, a podcast for people who love and want to learn more about all things science. I'm your host, Katja. And I'm your co-host, Giuliano. And today we are joined by Anina Klaasson, a grad student and researcher at Science Po in Paris, France, studying human rights and humanitarian action. Welcome, Anina. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, so how about uh, to start off, tell us a little bit about um, what you research and kind of the background of the topic in general. Hi, yeah. So um, basically, uh, I'm a grad student in a very broad program at the moment. I have a background first in political science, um, and then uh, I kind of took some time off and explored applied research environments for a little bit. So think tanks uh, and uh, the United Nations University as well, uh, before delving back into academia. So now I'm really doing, um, I kind of uh, wear multiple hats. Um, so I, I also work as a research assistant, kind of looking at diversity in parliament and statistics on ethnic and migrant minorities. Uh, but in my own research, I focus mostly on uh, media issues. So I kind of uh, straddle the intersection between communication studies and sociology in practice. Um, I also have some influence from sort of human rights law. Um, basically my program is set up in such a way that it, I can kind of carve out my own specialization. Um, and that's what I've done. So right now, my thesis topic and uh, my baby um, is basically about uh, structural barriers to dealing with uh, online harassment of women journalists. Um, so um, basically, uh, I am an internet troll nerd, and I want to focus on finding the solutions to um, online hostility. We know a lot about the problem. We have mapped up a lot of what, what kind of people gets targeted. Um, we don't quite know enough about the perpetrators, but I, I'd find that I wanted to kind of jump off a bit of mobilization that's been happening both in research, but also in civil society and international organizations that are starting to take the problem of online harassment uh, a bit more seriously. Um, and I wanted to attack the sort of what we can do about it question. Wow, yeah, it's super, super cool. And as uh, actually Giuliano and myself both have a STEM background. So I yeah. think it's, I'm really glad that we are getting some social science representation on the podcast. Yeah, you know, like there's a lot of computer science going a lot. It, like it's really um, kind of interdisciplinary when you're dealing with internet research. So there are a lot of STEM people uh, running about and then um, sort of, tech people who know humans um, is how I heard it described by someone else. And that's sort of vague field. So I don't like to silo myself into one discipline is exactly, but um, I, I run around uh, talking about how computers affect humans. Yeah, that's um, given how much technology and everything is present in our everyday life. It's mm -hmm. really important for it to be so interdisciplinary. Yeah. But so, um, how did you kind of find this field in a way or mm -hmm. how did you um how did this become a passion in a way right um so this actually comes from my own experiences uh as a freelancer 
I've been um, kind of working as a writer for many years, but um, sort of on the side uh, or whatever I have got going on at the moment. Um, so I pitch to, to, to uh, newspapers. Um, I've been writing for places like HuffPost, Open Democracy, um, Jacobin most recently, a few other places in a few other countries. So, um, and it, this particular topic has really uh, had its root in the sort of a specific incident when I was in Washington DC and I was writing a lot about the nomination of uh, Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court and the sort of activist space that was happening. Uh, the testimony of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, you know, who the basic story there that the that this that Brett Kavanaugh um, was accused of sexual assault on multiple accounts um, and yet was voted into the Supreme Court. Um, so um, I had a lot of sort of anger in me and I was involved in some of these activist movements working to stop his nomination, which ultimately did not succeed. Um, but I managed to publish a series of articles about it. And I, you know, I'm still not like by no means um, an established, established journalist, you know, like I, especially at the time, you know, like I had a couple hundred Twitter followers, you know, and I had rarely got a byline in a big national, but here um, I did manage to uh, have one article that got semi-viral, you know, like, or at least, you know, like a, a fair amount of people read it. And unfortunately also that was kind of the, the people who did not take it very well. So I started receiving, you know, not very nice messages um, in my Twitter DMs uh, on LinkedIn and in comment sections. And while this was very uncomfortable, uh, I was also sort of getting curious about it, like on a sort of um, researcher academic level, because, you know, how does this work? Like, how do these people find me, even though like I do not have a large following? Um, and why do they seem sort of so organized? Um, so wait, 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 you got yeah. basically shitstormed and instead yeah. of getting sad, you thought, huh, I could, I could study this. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I mean, it, took, it wasn't, amazing. <laughs> it wasn't immediate, but um, that was the sort of, you know, like I was doing an internship in DC and I knew that that was probably not the sort of thing that I would be doing all my life. So I was looking for different ways to actually sort of combine my interests. Um, and then I found this program, you know, which was still, you know, like broad enough. And I think when I started it, when I applied, you know, I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a media researcher, but then I found the sort of opportunity um, to explore my interests. And especially when sort of considering my uh, thesis topic, you know, like I, at first, I think for a long time, and, I, and I'm sure this is something that's, uh, must be quite different in STEM fields, but, um, uh, it's always a question of like, how close should you be to the topic you're researching? Like, should you draw on your own personal experiences? Yeah, What's right. your preference there? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, in neurology, you, have to, you can run into this issue, I assume. Um, but um, yeah, in fact, most people studying Alzheimer's disease, they don't remember what they're doing. Right. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Relatable concept. <laughs> but that's good because when I think it's social science or at least the sort of sociology and social science that I like, you know, like you, you have to be kind of active and think about these issues of reflexivity like you know and your own position as a researcher vis-a-vis -vis your topic and your participants when you're studying humans you will be talking to humans and you need to uh you know like show that you may be an outsider or you may not be and that has impact on your on your findings and your research process so uh i'm interested in in in, in these sort of wider methodological issues too um, but if I get back on track, yeah, so I decided to um, get away from my previous approach of kind of being a bit more distant to what I 
what I studied. And now I, I wanted to dive on these questions that are just kind of, they, I was just fundamentally very curious about it. And I had personal motivations and I started to understand the sort of larger uh, consequences of, you know, what, if this happened to, to me, like, you know, like, and, and it was a much, much smaller scale than a lot of the people that I've been speaking to and sort of that large high profile cases. Um, so I was curious about that. How much larger is this problem and what can we do about it? Yep. And it's like a super, super important topic given the, I feel like the prevalence of internet trolls is just increasing from the yeah. sound, like um, looks of things. And right now we're still very much in the depths of corona pandemic times. Yeah. And I feel like now with the new potential vaccines kind of being released soon, there's I've seen an unfortunate amount about or in comment sections, it can get ugly yeah. very quickly. So I'm, I'm very glad to hear that this is being researched. Yeah. And the thing is, like, um, when it comes to online trolls, harassment, abuse, whatever term you want to use, especially a lot of the experts that I've been speaking to, um, emphasize that, uh, you know, online harassment is the other side of the coin for disinformation. It's about first discrediting the quality information that should occur within journalists by, you know, making it impossible for journalists to do their job, which is often the reality uh, of, of people who are targeted by online harassment, that even, even if it's not a direct physical threat, which is also can be, you know, journalists do get killed. Um, but, uh, but just the toll of experiencing this constantly, because especially uh, if you are someone who say you are, you work in a country where you um, are essentially a dissident to the regime, uh, there may be a government-sponsored troll army whose job it is to make your life hell, you know, just by just by Twitter messages, and it gets very taxing, and it um, leads to this consequence of what's called the chilling effect, um, where it's not a direct censorship, but it's it's not that you know the government shuts down the newsroom, although sometimes they also do that. Um, but it's just you make the you make it impossible to work comfortably or safely as a journalist. And then um, and we see this, especially uh, with women journalists, with journalists who belong to marginalized groups, you know, like it just becomes too much. You may avoid certain topics. You may uh, sort of dial down on how much you put your name out there or you may leave the profession altogether. Several people that I've talked to um, have those kind of thoughts or have, in fact, already left. Uh, and are not, not doing journalism anymore. And then we lose those voices. Um, so we lose those quality voices. And then that opens up a field for misinformation and disinformation to, uh, to be shared and spread rapidly. And we know that it does because the social media platform, their business model, and they're set up in a way um, so that viral logic um, favors outrage. It favors um, what gets attention in a quantitative way rather than what would be qualitatively valuable um, and that is how fake news spreads and we can we have and we have seen there's are multiple studies that show that, that this has only increased an online abuse uh, an online abuse of women actually especially has only increased during the past year and do you I have a, like why is that do mm. you do you know why it's simple everyone's more online um, and so, so you mean that way, it, the problem was always there now it's just more visible because there's yeah. a, you know everyone is on the platform all right okay yes and almost with most social phenomenon anyway and uh you know the, the dynamic over the past year has been these are things that have always been there covid has only exacerbated it um so for example you know like right now from what i'm studying you know like i ask everyone you know like have you been affected 
uh, over the past year in some way, like either financially, you know, because there have been multiple media organizations that have just collapsed. Um, and, uh, and just in a basic way, if you're in lockdown, you're a journalist, you can't go out and talk to people and do your stories and everyone's working from home. So um, that sense of isolation um, is also uh, an important factor, you know, like, because um, like the main thing that I have found so far in terms of what actually works to kind of support journalists against the toll of online abuse. And that's something I would really like to take further specifically in the future is social support um, and, and solidarity. Like having someone that you can at least, you know, vent, you know, oh, can you believe what this comment told me? Um, you know, like, and, and, and on a larger level, you know, like making sure that you know who you can talk to if you're actually like, oh, I'm actually unsafe and I would like to take this to the legal team that legal team needs to be there. Um, and you also need to feel comfortable with your editor um, and whoever's in charge to talk to them because we're running into a lot of issues and sort of hierarchy dynamics um, that, uh, you know, you may be a freelancer and you have very little stability, you have very little pay, you are very concerned about keeping whatever jobs and gigs and commissions that you get. Um, so you may not feel comfortable bringing up anything negative at all. Um, to the editor, for example, or, you know, there may be a sort of general dynamic of hierarchy, you know, like a lot of people sort of mention that there's a general culture of you, this is, this comes with a job, you know, you just need to tough it out. Um, and, uh, and this is what it means to be a journalist. But in fact, you know, this is a very thing that prevents a lot of people from, from doing their job on a very basic level. Everyone deserves to be safe while, when they're at work. Yes, especially, and, and if it's making people leave the field, and as you said, like, yeah. we're losing these voices, that's, that can't just be a part of the job, like, that, that's yeah. really not okay. Exactly. So, kind of, I mean, the basic, um, what I'm trying to do as a contribution as well is to uh, kind of look from within the newsroom, because we, we can't just, like, obviously, this has to do a lot with how the social media platforms are set up, and and I can say that uh, from all both the experts and the media professionals that I've been talking to, there is zero faith in how the uh, social media platforms uh, handle this. Like they just don't have the incentive to do anything about it. And we can see this recently, like people have been fighting for years and years for Twitter to put up that little message over Trump's tweets that, you know, this may not be correct information. Um, and, and it took the recent US election for anything to happen. So. Uh, for individual journalists, you know, like who, you know, they just have no incentive to actually escalate these cases or make sure that this content is removed. Um, so there's very little faith in that. So basically what people have to go on is to go to their editor um, or in some cases, the local policeman. So I wanted to look at those sort of uh, factors of, of looking at sort of as a labor issue. Um, and, you know, what are the working realities uh, that are, are making it difficult for people to, to go to their editor and for that editor to then do something? And a lot of it has to do with sort of precarity, um, the fact that everyone's very um, uh, overworked, underpaid, um, and very fearful to lose their job. And that makes it very difficult to have any sort of hope, open dialogue um, or any action that doesn't um, sort of benefit the bottom line of the company to happen. You know, like a lot of the time, it's a very basic issue that the publication values the social media engagement of a piece more than the well being of the journalist who wrote it. So they may put a headline that maybe even misrepresents the issue in some way that attracts more trolls and attracts um, uh, more uh, negative online attention for that journalist. And if they try to bring it up, um, 
to change the headline or something, they don't really get heard because ultimately that editor who may be well-intentioned, but they answer to someone uh, higher up who cares about the social media metrics that ultimately mean clicks and more advertising revenue. So it's all this sort of web of complex factors that, um, that prevent um, anything from, from being done. And, and, um, and that's why you, know, you can't talk about this as just being about a tech issue. It's also sort of a, it's also an economic issue. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's about basic social dynamics and, and that's why interdisciplinarity is important. Yes, hugely so. And kind of what came to mind for me um, when you're talking about the kind of difficulties that many people might face with um, when they want to go to their or could potentially go to their editor, but then they have the problems, but then now or they're kind of like a block before can even go and discuss mm. to them. But now, especially given that we are all kind of stuck at home, there is probably an even bigger barrier for people. Yeah. And then this increase in people being online. So I exactly this huge problem <laughs> just kind yeah. of under the surface. In a yeah, way. that's what it that's what it is with COVID. It it doesn't necessarily create new problems, although <laughs> to some degree it does. But in many cases, it just makes everything else much harder. You know, like you're working from home, you don't even have an office to go to in which to to share, you know, like, ah, ha, ha, look at what this dumb comment did, said, you know, with your colleague, you know, so you're, you're feeling increasingly isolated and isolation in itself makes everything much harder, you know, like, and also talking about the sort of mental health side of, of journalism, that may be interesting to you. Um, you know, there's, I've been working a lot with um, a place called the Dart Center that's based at Columbia uh, in New York, um, who they work basically on journalism and trauma. And there's a lot of actually quite, cool work being done on online harassment and journalists, uh, specifically from the psychology point of view. Um, and I managed to exchange with a few other people who are running surveys and this kind of thing. So we're, we're probably gonna get better data soon um, uh, on, on, especially when it comes to sort of individual coping strategies and the individual toll that this, um, that this, um, that this takes you know, on a psychological level. Uh, and I mean, one thing that I that I've learned, especially from those exchanges, is that everyone is having the same problem with journalists. Is that the, the data we have is mostly quite terrible because it's very difficult to get a representative sample of journalists. Um, both from and from what I've been trying to 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 point out is you know, well, everyone's really overworked and no one has time to do these things. But also, I think this interesting, you know, like that journalists are used to being the observers and not the observed. Um, so that, that's a, that's a big problem in this field of journalism research and that people just don't answer surveys, you know, so um, they, we have these methodological limitations as well. Yeah, actually, that, that leads quite nicely on to um, what, what I was wondering. So how have you been kind of researching this? Um, mm -hmm. I presume interviews and such and yeah, uh, how, how have you kind of gone about and how does um, research in this field work? Right. Yeah. So in my particular study, what I chose to do here um, is that I divided the, the research phase in two phases and I'm working um, uh, qualitatively entirely on this. Um, what, what, I, what I have done a little bit in some previous smaller projects and what I'd really like to do a lot more in the future is to combine uh, qualitative and quantitative uh, methods, especially from looking at web data and get, you know, these sort of massive amounts of web comments and then run topic modeling or 
uh, other forms of more uh, natural language processing. So that's that's something that's being done a lot. There's many, many different techniques, and this is all coming from computer science to, to, to a great degree uh, on how to um, quantitatively analyze uh, web discourse, basically. So, but in this case, for this reason, especially because I was looking more at um, sort of more of an exploratory uh, look at the sort of social fabric factors. So it didn't, at this point, it didn't make sense. And also a major limitation is that it's really hard um, to get web data. Like it's, it's you, because the social media platforms are really not transparent. Twitter is the easiest. So you see more stuff being done there. I've, I've worked on YouTube comments, but Facebook, especially, they just don't share that kind of thing for researchers and it's a big problem in the field but so what i actually did now is that i i divided it into two phases so the first phase um i aimed to sort of uh look at the sort of macro level of factors um that that people are experiencing as as sort of structural challenges um for generating solutions against online harassment so what i did was that i've started to look at this sort of emergent so mobilization among civil society organizations and here we're talking about reporters without borders uh we have uh pen international we have the international women's media foundation places like this um we have some international organizations like the oece and unesco who are starting to prioritize and running campaigns and research efforts unesco just finished a huge survey um focused on women journalists in particular for example, and um, and also some individual sort of consultants and academics working on it. So I, I interviewed a bunch of them, basically. And with that, um, I sort of developed a matrix. And I, I used this software called Envivo for qualitative coding um, of, of the transcripts. Um, and I also sat in on some webinars, um, some had training sessions for, for editors or for just people interested in this field. Um, and I also looked at the sort of manuals and guidelines that these organizations have uh, have produced and I used those as data as well. So I analyzed all of that and I sort of created a matrix then of the main sort of trends and themes that emerged. Um, and then I took that into a second phase to inform the sort of um, questions that I would then ask to uh, the people who are actually affected by this. So uh, people working in journalism. And what I especially wanted to do, which hasn't been done very much before, is to focus on editors and uh, social media managers, community managers, and the people who are dealing with that on a sort of managerial level and uh, making decisions. But I also talked to, uh, to staff writers, and I especially wanted to talk to more freelancers uh, who may be the most vulnerable. And in order to sort of look at, you know, have different sort of press freedom levels and sort of general political, sociopolitical and cultural factors um, may play uh, a role, you know, so I, I picked two country case studies, which was the UK and India. Um, so the original plan was to do field work and go to these places and then do um, organizational observation within selected newsrooms, uh, but then pandemic, so uh, no one's doing field work and um, it's a lot of Zoom instead. So, so you're a been, Zoom pro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's how we are, but um, yes. that was, so that was a big challenge. And, um, but I managed to basically what I, I'm now spending a lot of time on Twitter, finding individual people and um and I, I have some criteria basically on so so um for my sample um 
like the the newspaper has to have a certain digital presence you know and i'm also trying to have uh, a fairly balanced amount of people in each of these categories so like editors freelancers staff writers that i just mentioned um and uh and i i interviewed them over zoom basically and um and then from that um i uh i go back to my sort of coding software and i look at the emergent themes and uh, and I don't have to go too much into theory here, I suppose, but I'm using this sort of analytical model called the hierarchy of influences, where you look at what's being done on a sort of individual, um, a routine level, which is about sort of the behaviors and norms that exist within an organizations, then the organizational structure, you know, what does it look like in terms of hierarchy? And then we look at the sort of macro level, social institutions and social systems. And that's when we go into, okay, what does the government do? You know, and these very macro level, uh, forces like patriarchy, capitalism, etc. Um, so I'm basically tracing what I'm what I'm uh, being told by these interviews through this sort of model, and then uh, by that, you know, like I hope to be able to draw some some general conclusions on what are the roadblocks and what are the barriers that would need to be pushed, um, and um, and that's both on an individual level up to uh, you know, the level of global capitalism, essentially. So to kind of see what are the opportunities for, uh, for actual action within that. And, and how do you actually envision, because you were saying that one reason why this isn't kind of dealt with is, or the problem of like the online harassment, why it's not being dealt with, um, is because of, you know, there isn't really anybody necessarily allocated to do that work. So do you envision that maybe, there could at some point be some sort of I'm not sure legislation or some sort of Mm -hmm. guidelines to suggest having like somebody in charge of you know being this emotional supports or yeah dealing with it in the first place or or do do you have a vision for it already right so when it comes to legislation it's very very tricky um because as any time when you're dealing with freedom of speech related regulation and and um and law um, then you're balancing basically uh, rights against each other. You know, you're balancing someone's right to free speech because most of the internet trolling is perfectly legal. You know, like it may be actively harmful and sometimes incite, inciting to violence, um, but it's actually been very difficult in most sort of legal regimes around the world to have that fall into actual um, criminal content. In some cases, yes, but um, in most cases, no. And especially this is because trolls get very creative. Like it's not... Like say you're being doxxed, you know, like and someone posts a picture of a of a house. It happens to be your house, but to to the algorithms and to the to the plain eye, it's just a picture of a house. Um, so it, 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 multiple difficulties, and a lot of this sort of organizations, especially who um, advocate for freedom of speech issues, they're very very hesitant to advocate for legislations. And rather, it's about adapting the laws that we already have in place. Uh, we do have anti-discrimination laws, for example. And uh, well, in France, there was this new um, Evia law, for example, called it was, that's the it's the nickname of the law that is explicitly against online hate speech. But it was immediately completely uh, sawed to bits by the Constitutional Council, um, and eighty percent of its contents were removed. Like you know, it gets into very tricky territory when talking about laws. Um, so instead, uh, the other problem that we have is resources, like. In newsrooms, um, you need people who have the time um, and are being paid and the expertise and the understanding to provide uh, legal support, psychological support, um, 
moderating online spaces. All of this takes extra labor. And the problem is that most news organizations are on the verge of collapse. Like we, especially when I, when I participated in webinars and you had like the New York times, or you have, you have, you have these very big names um, and they, they have stuff in place and that they there's, and that's important that they do have um, those staff members and structures in place, but uh, most people are not the New York times. So it becomes very difficult for them to set in the same stuff. So the the one the positive thing again you know and what I what comes up again and again is the importance of uh, peer support, in that you need what 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 kind of at least builds resilience and opportunities for resistance as well, um, is to have like structured networks in place where uh, journalists and not only journalists in general, but journalists who get your specific problem. So this can be uh, women journalists, journalists of color, queer journalists, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, like who, who can come together and where you feel like you can at least vent about this and that you can also talk about, hey, my editor is not taking this seriously, but then someone else might, you know, hey, here's what we did here. You know, we disabled comment sections on our thing to exchange these ideas uh, and build some mobilization. And then that also needs to be linked up with these more formal organizations um, that have the power and resources to maybe, you know, take a legal claim. Like in some cases, um, you know, someone has been struggling to to get any to get the the local police basically to do something about a very serious targeted hate campaign that that uh, includes uh, death threats or you know like they, they feel like this this is a, a real threat and I I may be physically harmed but the police doesn't take it seriously until someone else like you know you go to RSF or someone and they say. Uh, like, hey, take it seriously. And then suddenly everything happens and they manage to shut things down. So it's a lot about political will, but it's a lot about resources. And um, you can find these spaces in random Facebook groups and like Twitter lists, but also unions um, that also have some, some power to kind of go to newsrooms and talk, you know, like, and we need training and we need quality training because a lot of training sessions, you know, ends up being a very token uh, you know, short and uh, what many I've talked to experience is quite useless section like, you know, like you need to have good password safety and that's all they have. And there's nothing of the sort of general discussions that, you know, like if you're a journalist reporting on this and this topic, then you may expect to, to get a lot of abuse online. And this is what happens if, and this is what we'll do as a newsroom. This is our responsibility. If that happens, you should come to us and then we'll take it to this team and this team. And so that, so that the, especially the freelancers, you know, like who rarely have a contract to rarely have any sort of formal uh, support. Um, this information needs to be made available. You know, like you, you email someone, you get a commission and then, you know, like, oh, by the way, I'm like, I'm, I, uh, you know, I've, I've attached this sort of our guidelines on online safety so that in case something happens after you publish this article, this is what you need to do. To have that open communication is very important. What's also very interesting and what I'd really like to, to look at more in detail is the idea of counter speech. Uh, there are some organizations who do this formally, um, one called Heart Mob, this one called Trollbusters, and they're mainly US-based, um, in that you can go to these organizations and say, hey, I'm being targeted by a hate campaign. Um, and then they will essentially come in with a love campaign, you know, like, and uh, they, they, it will be a lot of resources spent on then making sure that uh, there's a lot of positive stuff happening on your Twitter feed, feed which is a, it's a very interesting um, and also freedom of speech compatible idea. So wait, 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 it's, yeah. so they hire, what, bots or any no, no, real, real Twitter account? They, they just go there and just say, hey, we love you instead. <laughs> Below the comments I mean, saying you're a dick and I stuff mean, like that. 
I mean, simplified, yes. Like, you know, for example, you know, they can, they can, and this can be informal too. This doesn't have to be through a formal organization, um, you know, like, but uh, it's, it's positive counter speech, you know, like you're, you're maybe, maybe there will, you know, retweet articles of that person saying that, hey, this is beautifully written, da, 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 da. And because uh, it targets specifically with journalists, the idea is that if you have a bunch of uh, often sometimes quite sophisticated campaigns that are out to discredit you, saying that this journalist is corrupt, for example, or like, you know, like they, they will make sure that you have, that your reputation and your presence online becomes poisoned, essentially. And then this um, is meant to be a counter force to that, you know, to make uh -huh. sure that you have positive support. But isn't that going to obtain the opposite result? I mean, imagine that, right, so you're a journalist and you get, yeah. uh, you know, you, you become a victim of this kind of uh, bad campaign where everyone, yeah. you know, they, they, they retweet you saying, you know, you, you know you're, you're corrupt or anything. And then you do this, you hire these people and mm. they do the love campaign. And then it comes up that you hired people to retweet positively your your tweet that's just going to confirm well, the the fact that there's something shady about you yeah so usually the dynamic is not that you hire someone and then you like it's more that you kind of you go to these uh services first for support you know like and then um it's more about mobilizing existing and real networks it's, obviously if you they would basically be astroturfing uh, if you, it was just like a bunch of random people coming in and um, and saying, "Hey, you're this is a wonderful journalist," um, but it's more about accessing that network actually. So like they they are specific, you know, like it, it depends on 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 your needs and especially when it comes to discreditation, this can be an effective way. Although we do not have enough data on the effects of counter speech, um, and I would love to uh, look into it more specifically in the future. I do have to say that I love the idea that it's kind of like a like anti-troll factory yeah. or not not factory obviously but like network in a way and that's somehow Basically. very wholesome in a way <laughs> I, I mean to be fair it is actually beautiful like you get shitstormed and let's go back up and the love yeah. army comes along yeah i mean that's the that's the image behind it yes uh -huh. uh, yeah <laughs> exactly so but um but the, the, I mean, the appeal of counter speech and why a lot of governments are looking at uh, similar things, you know, like it's also it's also a wider idea, you know, it's just quality journalism itself is a form of counter speech to disinformation because you cannot just go whack-a-mole and uh, shut down every troll or every piece of fake news out there one at a time. And then you're always reactive, you know, you're always reacting after the fact and it becomes untenable. The, 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 you know, the idea is that the best remedy is to provide a good quality landscape of information and a more civil online landscape in general, like before, like to work on that bedrock so that the negative aspect don't have as much effect. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's appealing to governments because it doesn't mean you're not limiting anyone else's speech, you're just adding more speech. Um, but uh, I mean, there for the studies that are, that do exist on that sort of an, on online hate speech in general, and then going into um, and, and also disinformation, uh, it, we it's a bit mixed in terms of effectiveness. It, it does depend a lot on how you do it. So the points you you mentioned, you know, like of course, if you're just like hiring bots to say lots of positive things, then that's that's not legitimate. Um, and uh, so I so I think more research needed, basically. <laughs> I had no idea of all these techniques and, and I, yeah. I love that. But, but I wanted to ask you, like, how is, mm -hmm. because honestly, I didn't, I had before meeting you and before listening to you, I had no mm -hmm. idea this was, a th I mean, I knew about hatred um, on the internet, of course, we all yeah. do. Uh, but so 
Are we talking about a specific kind of uh, journalist targeted hate speech or is it just in general the usual hate speech that any person with a bit of influence got not to diminish it, I'm not saying that it's yeah. minor I'm just trying to understand do journalists get a specific journalist specific um, hatred mm. or are we talking about it's the hatred that everyone gets but because these people are mainly working online so they, mm -hmm. they get to feel it more yeah, it's more to, to that latter point, you know, like I focus on journalists because journalists occupy a specific and vital role when it comes to guarding the right. flow of information. But I've also, I also um, spent a year doing a desk review for UNESCO uh, on global initiatives to target online hate speech more generally. And that's when I look more about especially like what are some governments doing in terms of legal interventions and that, that's a more general thing. Um, so, I mean, the basic idea is that the more public you are, and also combined with the more marginalized identities you are racking up, the more likely you are to be targeted online. That's what, of course, yeah, yeah. That's what we're finding. Yeah. So journalists have a specific, also, you know, this uh, development in recent years that journalists have to be cultivating an online brand, you know, which also happens in other professions, academia too. Uh, there are some studies on. on so true. So yeah, true. Yeah, exactly. Mine's Twitter is the best or my right. favorite. Exactly. <laughs> and it should the, be. The, 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 the tweet that the followers count will probably yeah. become more important than the impact. I see factor. academic CVs who list their follower counts, which I'm like, wow, that's I wild. mean, isn't that. Oh, let, okay, let, that's a, a conversation for a different episode. <laughs> <laughs> but it's no, but it's, but it's part of it because if you're, if you're required to maintain an active online presence, uh, like by your job and journalists, especially sometimes they have mandates, you know, like in how they have to behave online. And that means being active and, and engaging, but you're also making yourself more vulnerable. So, I mean, the basic idea is that the more public you are, the more, um, the more you attract yeah. in reactions in general. Plus, um, I guess being a journalist, uh, you always will have someone who's against you. You will always... Yeah always make someone angry i guess yeah. because it's your i mean your job is you, you of course if you're a good journalist you're mm -hmm. just you know telling facts but we yeah. know that facts usually uh, make people angry <laughs> yeah and also you know um it, it has a lot to do with how the way we distribute news nowadays because um i mean we can all agree you know like we just scroll facebook or twitter or whatever we only see headlines and yeah, oh people, my god yes that's so true most people never read beyond the headline and that's why the headline matters so much in terms of the reaction that you get and editors need to be super aware of that so it can make a huge difference you know like what word choice you use in the headline and and it's you know it's a whole seo uh you know profession uh to make sure they generate generates as much clicks as possible and we all know these websites that you know have crazy headlines and uh that does not all reflect the content in the well, article i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> well then you have a very well curated social media feed um but um but yeah but this is the the i don't, I don't i'm not quite sure what the original uh question was but um basically it has a lot to do with how the way we distribute information according to vi viral logic and we are in the situation right now where public information and public interests you know like this has to do with the information we have for elections uh, for a global pandemic, you know, like basic things that that, that determine our lives, um, and they are in the hands of private companies right now. Um, you know, Facebook and Twitter—they're not publishers; they're platforms. Um, they they do not uh, curate what's being uh, shared there, but the way that they have set up their their platforms determine what information we have access to. 
So we have a situation right now where the public good is in private hands and that creates a lot of issues. I do, I do have to say that's that's quite frightening <laughs> in a way, yeah, especially we, since you were saying that the earlier on, and I, I was pretty intrigued about that, how Facebook doesn't really give up the comment sections for research, which, yeah. you know, you'd think you or you rather you would hope it's difficult to get access to to facebook content in general for research purposes yeah yeah and and that's i think quite you know worrying and exactly how you said that public interest is in private hands so you you would really hope that they would take this matter more seriously but yeah luckily but they, don't, least... they don't have an incentive to that's the thing they 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 will not earn money from uh from making sure that people don't get uh death threats and and ultimately they don't they earn more money from fake news than real news yeah <laughs> so that's Cheer, a, cheerful it's, times <laughs> it's a depressing it's a depressing topic but that's the sort of that's i mean i'm just trying to to show you know sort of that it's all of this together you know like it's it's down to it's, it's these larger forces of you know the the tech giants that, that that rule our lives but it's also down to how well you get on with your your editor you know like if it's if it's like it can have a massive impact on whether or not you you get on personally um whether or not you're safe you know so it's very complicated and that's why i'm not my 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 work is not meant to be a representative you know like uh, be all end all uh, definitive study of everything that's going on I'm basically trying to show and map out a few of these questions that we need to um, that we need to explore further and and hopefully a few that uh, have not been uh, pointed at enough before oh yes and I'm I'm very glad that you are doing this research and that people in general are actually studying this because it's clearly yeah. with our lives going more and more online mm-hmm. um, something that definitely needs improvement. I think it's it's very important to raise the point that it is a problem because although you know we all know about the what's happening on social media you know in the comment section yeah. it's always although I mean personally I'm 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 ashamed to say that before you know listen to you but my my attitude was well yeah you know it just comes with the platform there's not much yeah. I guess if 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 I were I if I were to receive you know these kind of comments my only the only thing i could think of would be oh toughen up that's how it works like mm-hmm. sadly it is so that if you don't hear it from someone saying it is an issue wake up it's not supposed to be like that yeah you just take it for granted and i mean the very sad thing is when you are living through it and you still can't get past the idea that this is just what you're what, what it is to be online or what it is to be a journalist or you know or what it is to be a woman online or a black person online da, 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 da. like but like it it definitely does not have to be this way and especially if we're talking about just the general uh you know programming of, of twitter then you know these are very real decisions that can very easily be changed um then we have you know of course you know like the the point is that um these are not tech determined like uh tech dependent issues entirely if you know if if facebook became um became a goody two-shoes tomorrow, then we would probably still see this issue because it is just reflective of wider discriminatory patterns that we see offline. Of course, yes. Right. But uh, but basically there are very real choices that that these platforms could make and that governments could make and the local policeman could make, you know, like in the meantime, essentially. And and actually um, that brought to mind, so what, sometimes I get lost as I'm sure many of us do, but sometimes I get lost in these very controversial comment sections and I end up seeing some very ugly comments and mm. then reporting and flagging them. And I think yeah. like some I'll go and like and just like flag and like report a bunch. 
for different reasons, but I was surprised that, so I think I can't exactly remember which uh, social media it was, but maybe it was on some uh, posts in Instagram, you're able to mm-hmm. report for hate speech, but not all, yeah. which I yeah. found very bizarre. I feel like it should kind of be mandatory yeah. everywhere because you you see so much of it, um, but yeah. also that it's not even an option on all platforms yeah and and also the time that it takes I think the record amount of time because most of the time I forget about the comments or accounts that I've flagged but then uh, I think it was like 54 weeks it was like your service comments from yeah 54 weeks ago has now gone through and I was like what right <laughs> over a year ago <laughs> I don't even yeah. remember this like how how can it take so long when it's something yeah. so vital Actually, you know, and that's that's a very good uh, example as well, uh, you know, because you, with, with these platforms, it's actually humans. And, and this becomes, it's a very difficult question because of course um, there are many, many issues with sort of um, algorithmically determined like detections of hate speech. It, it will always be imperfect. Um, and I think it's good to have a human element uh, involved in moderation, but um, uh, you know, there there are, you know, we I don't know if you've seen these articles on these people whose job it is to go through the, the worst material on Facebook. They, that's what they do all day. Um, this is a terrible job and, and they should be better paid. Like right now it's kind of a, a weird trauma farm set up, um, you know, but exactly like, you know, there's not enough resources and, and um, you know, Twitter and Facebook, they, they could spend a bit more money on this. They have uh, they're not as much that at least at the very least they're not as much in crisis mode as a lot of these like little say your local newspaper that can't afford to hire a full-time moderator um, and go through these things all the time so they're not the only actor that needs to be implicated but we certainly need to make them walk the talk uh, a lot more than they're doing right now i have a question before yeah. closing yes uh, of so course. of course at one point we drifted towards uh, in, you know, generic hate speech. But of course, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, you're focused specifically on uh, women journalists, right? Yes, uh, at the moment. So I'm wondering, um, of course, you know, I'm, sadly, I'm not surprised that women specifically get targeted. It's a, it's a sad, predictable re- reality. Did you check whether women in journalism mm-hmm. get more gender-specific hate speech compared to women in other uh, jobs that are still online, for example, content creators online right. or something like that. Is it that people just, you know, are mean towards women or is it pe- the people that don't think that women should do journalism or stuff like that? Mm. What we have are studies that show that women in general on the online are targeted more. And this is where we have the most data, um, especially this year. There have been um, several reports looking at how COVID uh, has affected this in particular. And uh, one that's often cited is from a Pew Research Center study that is looking at roughly 50% of all women have experienced uh, some sort of harassment, abuse. Uh, 50%? Yep. One yep. out of two? Yep. Yes, one out of two. And that's I probably... I don't even know why I sound surprised. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, like. no. And I think, and again, you know, like this is when you just have to ask any woman. And and it also becomes this sort of idea um, that even if you haven't personally received. You probably hear threat, or know, you know someone. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You know, you know, you know that it happens. And the very fact that, you know, it's the same way that about uh, sort of the threat of gender based violence in general. It, aff- it, it affects how you comp- how you do you walk alone at night. You know, like it's a sort of general culture that only gets reinforced and you have to navigate that as being uh when you're in an online space because even if it hasn't happened to you yet you may know someone personally or at least you know that it's out there so you Um, should never go on twitter alone (laughs) 
I mean, it's a very healthy Amazing. life choice to get off Twitter in general. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, but um, uh, but what I was, yes. Yeah, so, but then there have also have been studies looking at women journalists in particular that have found the same things. You know, men certainly get harassed too, but also the nature of it is different. It is less personal. It is certainly less sexualized. They are less likely to target your family. It may be more substance-based um, if you are a, are a white straight cis man journalist who are writing controversial things, you will certainly get a lot of hate and maybe a lot of very distressing things, but you're less likely to get rape threats. You're less likely to get pornographic videos altered of you and spread online. You're less likely to get doxxed and these sort of dynamics. And I also want to emphasize that we um, there's a current focus on women journalists because there's a massive misogynist uh, element to this in particular, but also we currently, uh, we have not paid enough attention to uh, the racist dimension of this, to uh, homophobic, transphobic, et cetera. But these elements are always there. This is about, you know, whatever marginalized identity that, that is oppressed in general, it always compounds. And this is why we need an intersectional perspective. And I, I hope, and in the future, when I when I continue this work, I, I, I do want to maintain a, 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 you know, a, a gender focus, but also look at journalists of color who are organizing against this queer journalist, Every ugly pattern out there in society is reflected online, and if you're more public, uh, you will be targeted as a professional, as a journalist, but also as whatever personal identities you have. Yeah, and if you're a minority, well, it's even worse, I guess, because yeah. they will hook. They will hook to that. Yeah, they will hook to that and find whatever they can find. That that's what it means being oppressed. You have less power, so you're also less likely to have an ed- an editor who shares those identities that you that you can then go to. It's and you know, and it goes up the hierarchy chain. What's genuinely being perceived as as effective by the journalists that I talk to precisely is, and I suppose this sounds cheesy, but <laughs> but it is the um, coming together and um, the people who are affected by this, it can make a massive difference just to uh, be in touch with your colleagues um, and find your community of peers, certainly the case in other professions too. The opportunity for social support uh, is huge and, and the difference that that can make is absolutely vital. Uh, and this doesn't have to be a hugely forma, like formal resource intensive thing. This can be uh, a WhatsApp group and this could just be your, your general friends. And, and another piece of good news, I suppose, is that we are seeing mobilizations and that we are seeing action happening and we are seeing more media organizations and, uh, and say UN agencies, you know, taking this more seriously, putting resources into this, doing more research. Um, and uh, and hopefully that can lead to a sort of positive snowball effects of us knowing more about what works and what is effective and what we need to do. And then that also actually happening. Yes. So definitely a positive outlook for the future. Um, and I was wondering kind of as a final question. So if there's someone, one of our listeners who is interested in this topic um, and would like to maybe pursue this uh, line of research, is there any advice you would give that person honestly reach out to other people because there's not a lot of us working on being you know troll nerds at the moment and i've been i've had some really good conversations like talking with phd students and like but the people who are who are junior researchers working on this but also senior people um i think it's it's great to to have again i guess this comes back to social support um this can sometimes be a bit taxing you know like if you're just reading death threats all day um, and you you do need to to kind of connect your community of researchers on this. Another thing is to uh, remember that uh, journalists are hard to sample <laughs> and uh, are very busy and hard to get to get to answer surveys, as I talked about before. Um, so I guess being a bit creative about the sort of methods you use and the sources of data, and um, you know, it's not just about interviewing people, but also looking at the actual journalistic content. You know, there, there's so much really exciting stuff. Uh, I think especially for people who have these sort of uh, interdisciplinary 
multi-pronged uh, questions and interests, you know, so I, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the field. Yes, I'm certainly going to keep an eye out and mm -hmm. can't wait to see where you take your research in the future. Um, and But unfortunately, I think that brings us to the end of this podcast episode. Mm -hmm. um, but before we leave, um, Giuliano, what is the fun fact for today? Right. So I, I found a very goofy one. You know the platypus, right? Which is a fun <laughs> yes. fact on its own. Just saying platypus, <laughs> that is. usually would be enough. But did you know, I mean, probably, I hope not, because it's something recent, that the fur of the platypus seems to be fluorescent under UV light. <laughs> what? No way. They just discovered this like a month ago. So basically, usually, yes, no. So usually they're dark brown, right? These scientists from Texas University, I think, they were studying the biofluorescence, bioluminescence of uh, squirrels, because apparently squirrels, some the flying squirrels. Wait, what? The flying squirrels apparently uh, have, their fur is fluorescent under UV light, but that that's not the discovery, they knew that. <laughs> I'm interested in the bioluminescence. Apparently seems to be very common in some mammals. So basically these scientists, they were in these, this uh, museum and they were basically just uh, analyzing this specimen of flying squirrels. And just they decided to shine the light also on the platypus. And <laughs> it, was, it was fluorescent. So it looks like, I have the picture here in front of me, but of course you can't see it. But imagine this fluor green and blue, like fluor, neon <laughs> green and blue. So yeah, that's the fun fact of, of today. I'm mind blown. Uh, I, I, I have to say, say yeah. couldn't make its mind up when discussing with evolution and how it was supposed yeah. to build, be built. I want a, a beak. I want a fur. I want to lie eggs. And what else? I want to be fluorescent. I and respect you that go. immensely. Exactly. I do. Yeah, I have to say, and I, I, as a biologist, I immediately start to wonder, like, what, why? what is the evolution? Yeah, why, why? And then also, there's, there's this whole, there's this whole world of fluorescent mammals or fluorescent beings that we have, we have no idea where it's exactly. Totally missing this out. is the thing. Uh, regarding your question, which is a very reasonable question from a biologist, what's the evolutionary reason for that? So they're quite sure it's not to communicate within each other because platypuses, apparently they do not rely much on eyesight. So scientists don't think that is the main purpose. So the article I've read suggests it might be to be less visible from predators, but being fluor green, I don't know how is that, gonna, that, that is gonna help, but mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a zoologist. But yeah, they, they've been asking themselves that same question. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to get a zoologist on the podcast for sure. Oh yeah, we need to make a platypus episode. Oh, please. Yes. yes. <laughs> but so thank you very, very much, Anina, for joining us today. It's been a super, super interesting conversation. And thank you to our listeners as well. And stay tuned for the next episode. Bye. The science If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? 
Get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.